Well, good evening. Um, I, I read a poem recently, and, um, and the poet asks the question, what is the wanting in our wanting? What is it that we are searching for in all the places that we're searching in? And his point, um, his point is that there's something restless, insatiable about our wants and desires. It's like, you know, when you have an itch, but no matter where you scratch, you just can't locate it. Do you ever have, ever have that? We, um, we recently, my wife and I borrowed um, my in-law's convertible BMW car. We had it for like about a month or so. And so if you've seen me sort of cruising around, sadly, it's not mine. Um, I wish. But it was great. And there was this point where my, ch- my children all had chicken pox at the same time. And so we were sort of you know, not really seeing anyone, had to sort of stay a bit quarantined. Um, but uh, there's this, it was a sunny day, and I was like, do you know what? I'm going to take them out in the car. So put them all in the car, took the roof down. We went and did a drive-through um, Costa thing. So we got a coffee, and they had their little baby chinos. And, um, and then we went for a drive, and we, drove, we were driving through these country lanes in the sun, top down, drinking our drinks, with some jazz coming out of the stereo. And I was like, this is absolutely amazing. And um, I remember actually saying out loud, who says money can't buy happiness? <laughs> Unbelievable, just a confession there. Um, but it was great. And we do get joy from those sort of things, don't we? They're good things to enjoy. But Really, we know that stuff like that doesn't fully satisfy us, even if in the moment it feels like it does or it can. Ultimately, you know, we still have the same issues and frustrations with or without a car. It doesn't take long before we're looking to the next thing. And so the poet asks the question, what is the wanting in all of our wanting? What's going on? What are we really looking for? And I'd love us just to hold that question in our minds today. Because it's why the passage we're going to spend some time looking at is incredibly relevant and important. We're in a series, as I mentioned, in the book of Hebrews at the moment. And um, Hebrews was written about 2,000 years ago. But the author who writes it is drawing on texts that are like 1,000 years plus before that. And so it's no surprise that as we read it, we kind of end up thinking, what, what are you going on about? It was written into a different time, culture, social, political, religious context. And there's just loads and loads of assumed knowledge in it. Loads of terms that the initial hearers would have understood. Um, but we find it tricky. And it's a bit like, sometimes it feels a bit like, you know, when you're in a group and everyone laughs at some in-joke and you just don't get it. And you sort of try to laugh, you sort of, <laughs> but you don't get it. You've got no idea what's, what's going on. Or um, recently I watched the um, Infinity War Avengers film, the Endgame film, and um, and it's like a 22-strong um, movie franchise, I think. It's like 22 or something like that, movies in the build-up to Infinity War. And um, I've seen a few of them, but I haven't seen all of them because I do have a life. Um, but <laughs> if you have, it's fine. <laughs> um, but I, watched, I was watching this film, and 20 minutes in, I was like, I, don't, I have no idea what is going on here. And so I stopped it, and I found this 25-minute um, YouTube film that was like everything you need to know in order for this to make sense. Um, and it's a little bit like that here when we read Hebrews, it's, um, but kind of actually just way worse. Um, 
and no less so in the passage that we're going to look at today. If we were reading this in Wikipedia, it would just be hyperlinking us all over the place. But honestly, there's treasure here. I read this week the most precious diamonds, blue diamonds, are the ones that are most deeply embedded in the earth, the ones that you have to really dig for. And there's really treasure here if we're willing to dig and just give it our attention. And actually, the complexity reminds us again and again that the Bible isn't just a magic book. It didn't just fall out of the sky, but it's actually just a historical document. It's real people writing to real people in real circumstances. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been saying that this book was written to Jewish Christians in the first century, Jews who'd chosen to follow Jesus as their Messiah or rescuer, the one they'd been expecting and looking for. And they were experiencing persecution from the wider Jewish community. It would have been easy for them to give up on Jesus just to go back to what they used to be part of. We don't actually know who the author is, but we do recognize and can see in the letter that their main concern is for these believers to persevere, to not give up, not to go back. And so we've had this little table. It should come up on the screen, if you remember. And we, um, just to help us sort of process the book as we look through it, and we ask these questions. What is the author saying? We say that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Why is the author saying that? To encourage the believers to persevere in their faith. And how do they do it? By comparison. The word better appears in Hebrews more times in this book than any other, all the other books in the New Testament combined. It's the author's tactic. Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua. He brings a better revelation, as we saw in week one, and a better rest, as we saw last week. Jesus is better. And the principle is just quite simple, really. The more clearly we see something's value, the less inclined we are to let it go. The more clearly the recipients of this letter see Jesus' worth, the less likely they are to give up and go back. And that's what the author's trying to do. Show them Jesus' value to help them persevere. That's the big picture. And, and kind of with that in mind, let's jump into today's passages. If you're, um, if you're new to faith or the Bible, then as you listen, you're probably going to think, what on earth are you going on about? Just warning you. And uh, if you've been here, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, uh, maybe pretty familiar with the Bible, as we read it, you're probably going to think, what on earth are you going on about? Uh, but at least we're all on the same page, right? All on the same page. It's a little complex, so hang in there. Um, we're going to start Hebrews 4. I'm just jumping through a few passages, so um, it might be easier to follow on the screen. Hebrews 4, here we go. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then we jump down. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then down a bit further. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? No doubt we were all thinking that. (laughs) For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And a little bit further down. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And finally, a little bit further down. Now the point in what we're saying is this. Praise the Lord. We should just have maybe jumped in there. Um, Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So I told you, kind of tricky, right? Priest, sacrifice, high priest, Abraham, tents, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Um, but remember, this made sense to the original readers, the authors just talking their language. We have to work a little harder to understand what they understood, but it's worth it. So how do we get a handle on all this? I think the first thing we have to get our heads around or engage with is this idea of a priest. The language of um, priest is pretty alien to most of us. But in that day, it was quite normal. In the Jewish context, they were part of a whole system of rituals and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices. And all that, that all revolved around the temple and was to do with how this people would have access or know God. And there was loads of activity every day. But once a year, the high priest, the best priest, would go into the center of the temple, the holiest part of the temple, to represent people to God. Essentially to meet God on behalf of the people. That was the priest's role. And it sounds strange to us initially, but actually I think the concept isn't as far removed as we might think. Because essentially priests were mediators. They were mediators. And there are loads of situations that we're familiar with where we need mediators. Recently, um, I had a leak, we had a leak in our bathroom, and I went to have a look, which is just always a bad idea for me. Like, it's just, I'm just not that guy. I never make it better. But I just thought, you know, I went in optimistic. Um, and I, uh, I got stuck in, and it went from being one small issue to being three significant issues. Um, <laughs> And what I needed was help. I needed, I needed someone who was qualified, who could do what I couldn't, someone to mediate, to stand between me and these flipping pipes. And um, so we called a plumber, as you do. Actually, this plumber uh, he came didn't actually fix any, any of the issues at all, and it cost us 300 pounds for 30 minutes 
I couldn't believe it. It's another story. Now I need another mediator between me and the plumbing company. And, uh, and actually, after explaining how much it costs for a short time, a mediator between my wife and I, too. Um, but eventually, we did get a plumber who came and fixed it came and fixed the problem. And the same is true with my car. When something goes wrong, I lift the bonnet, I look, I close the bonnet, and I call the AA because I'm just not that guy. I'm just not. Um, I wish I was. Some of you are. I, need, I needed a mechanic, someone who would mediate between me and the car. Or defendants in, in a court of law, they employ a lawyer, and the lawyer's role is to mediate between them and the judge. In life, we need a mediator when there's a problem. When something is broken, something's gone wrong, someone who can fix what we can't. But the key assumption underneath all of that stuff is that something is actually wrong. The assumption underneath the text and everything the the author to the Hebrews is saying uh, is that something is wrong, that there's actually a problem that does need fixing, something that needs mediating. And I started with that line, what is the wanting in our wanting Because that is our felt experience of the world, isn't it? That something isn't quite right, that something is lacking, that we have a need that we struggle to meet. I read of um, the entrepreneur um, Neil Patel. He uh, he became a millionaire by the time he was 21, and he'd built his whole life around making money. And he says this, I was experiencing all the things that money can provide, the clothes, the accommodation, the transportation, the jewelry, the food, but none of those things were deeply satisfying. Sure, it felt good at first, but then it felt like no big deal. The thrill had gone. It kind of actually got boring. What What was happening? Wasn't this what I'd worked so hard for? I realized that my entire life goal, rising from my middle-class environment and making millions of dollars, just didn't satisfy at all. Or Miley Cyrus, um, speaking of fame, she says this, it's a never-ending cycle, getting more money, having more hits, being the lead in the movie. Those things might stimulate you, but they don't make you happy. I've experienced it all already. And I'm telling you firsthand, it doesn't. And we could find thousands of quotes just like that. There is something in us that's difficult to satisfy. No matter, it seems, where we look. In the words of um, the philosopher Bono, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. (laughs) What is the wanting in our wanting? Well, the worldview of the Bible is that we were created by God and created for God. And so in the first chapter of the Bible, we see that the man and the woman are walking with God in the cool of the day. There's no distance, no gap. But it didn't last. They reject God. Sin enters the world and breaks that perfect relationship, putting distance between us. And while sin wreaks all sorts of havoc in the world, the big thing to note is that humanity experiences alienation from God. And according to this book, according to the Bible, that is our fundamental problem. It's the problem underneath all the other problems. We were made for God, but we've been alienated from God. And nothing else can meet our need of God. We were made for God. We've been alienated from God. And nothing else can meet our need of God. That's the wanting in our wanting, the itch that needs scratching. Augustine put it this way, as Susie quoted last night, um, last week, sorry. 
You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's the reason why the job, the car, the money will never truly satisfy. Those things don't touch the deepest need within us. The wanting and our wanting, that deep unresolvable wanting is a need for God. And it's there because we were created to know him and yet find ourselves astray. Unable and unqualified to fix the problem. What we need is someone to help. We need a mediator, a plumber, a priest. Some way of bridging the gap. And this is where the author makes their argument. Jesus is the answer, they say. Jesus is the answer. He's a better helper, a better mediator. He's a better priest. Better than anything you've been used to. And so the author writes to these first century Jewish Christians using their language, using their framework. Jesus is our great high priest. And and the author simply means he's the one who connects us to God. He's the one who connects us to God. In lots of other places in the New Testament, we see this same idea, just with less sort of pictorial language. In, um, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bridging the gap, mediating for us, reconciling us. Or um, Peter says this elsewhere, for Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. I love that, that he might bring us to God. It's about reconciliation, mediation, fixing. The idea that Jesus came to reconcile us, to restore our relationship with God, is just all over the New Testament. It's all over it. But this language, describing Jesus as the high priest, created some problems for its hearers. Because becoming a high priest was something that happened on the basis of the family and tribe you were in, that you were born into. And so they'd have been thinking, yeah, but that's, that is not possible. He can't be that. It's not possible. You can't just become high priest. You have to be from the tribe of Levi. You have to be from the family of Aaron. And Jesus just isn't from any of those places, not from those places. It's like, you know, it's like saying you can't just become the queen of England. And so the author takes them on a bit of a journey back into the Old Testament, back into the scriptures that they knew so well. So hang in there. It's a little complex because it wasn't firstly written for us. It's a little complex, but we'll come out the other side. Um, And it revolves around this guy, Melchizedek. So hopefully when we read the passage, you were like, well, who is that guy? Well, here here we go. as an aside, I don't think um, there are any like little Melchizedeks running around in Trent Kids at the moment. So if you're at that point and you've got a baby, you know, and you want a unique name, then little Melky could be cute. <laughs> I don't know. Melky. Um, anyway, wait, Melchizedek came up in the passage we read quite a bit. And the author makes quite a detailed argument. I'm not going to go into it, but I just want us to see the relevance of this character, this obscure character. And... Um, He only appears twice in the Old Testament. In the whole Old Testament, he only appears two times. And the first is in Genesis 14, so right at the very beginning. And Abraham, the father, you know, the great father of the Jewish faith, the Jewish nation, meets 
this guy, he bumps into this guy, Melchizedek. And uh, there are two things, you can read about it if you want to, Genesis 14 later, but there are two things to note from that encounter. One is that Melchizedek is called priest of God most high. And this is interesting because it's prior to the whole priestly system. It's prior to any of that even being introduced. And secondly, Abraham receives a blessing from him and pays a tithe to him, both of which show that Abraham saw Melchizedek as greater than himself, as more important than he was, which is crazy because Abraham was like the the top dog and Abraham saw him as more significant. So we hear about him in Genesis 14, um, but we also then hear about him. The only other time in the whole of the Old Testament is in Psalm 110, which was written centuries later, centuries after all of that, um, where the, the psalmist is talking about one day this guy will come, this Messiah will come, and he'll put everything right. And, he, and the psalmist says he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that name again. And that psalm, that line is quoted loads of times in this book by the, by the author to the Hebrews. And he applies it to Jesus. He says, that's talking about Jesus. That psalm is talking about Jesus. So what's the point? Why is he doing all that? What's, what's going on? The author sees Melchizedek, this guy, as representing another way to be a priest, which doesn't mean you have to come from the right family or the right tribe. Another way for us to be reconciled to God. It's like if you've ever read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Um, I'm reading it with my boys at the moment. Um, at one point in the story, the witch says that she has read the deep magic. And that as a result of that, Aslan must die. And so Aslan dies. But then he comes back to life and they can't understand how or why, what's gone on. And he says this, yes, but there was a magic deeper still from before the dawn of time. And it's a bit like that here. There's this Jewish priestly system that's up and running around the temple and all of that. But all the while, there's this character, Melchizedek, in the background, a a priest, but not part of any of that. In fact, he was way before any of that, who even the great Abraham revered. He's like the whisper, the anticipation of another way, a deeper way, a better way to bring people and God together. And the Messiah, the one who's going to come and fix everything, is going to be like him. He's going to be from that line. And so the author writes that Jesus is the mediator. He's that mediator, even though he's from the wrong family, even though he's from the wrong tribe, even though he doesn't tick all the boxes that they think he should be ticking and that the high priest had to tick. Because there's another way, a Melchizedekian way, if you like. And it was always the plan. This isn't new. It's always been there since even before Abraham, since before the Jewish nation existed. It's always been the plan. And then the author goes on to show having sort of um, worked out how this is possible, having shared with them how can, this, how can he be a high priest? How can that even ha- happen? How can he bring us to God? He then goes on to say, and actually this is so, so, so much better than what you're used to. 
And there are loads of reasons in the text. If you read, you know, read through Hebrews 4 to 7, there's loads of reasons why it's better. I just want to mention three. He's a better priest. He's a better mediator. He brings us to God in a, in a better way because of what he offers, where he offers it, and who he is. And remember, the author's talking their language. He's still talking in the images that they would have understood that make sense to them, and that's why it's tricky for us. It, he's making it, the author's making it easier for them even though it makes it trickier for us. Um, so he's a better mediator, Jesus is, between us and God because of what he offers. So if you look in the, uh, in the text, it says this, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices, talking about Jesus. He did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Every day and every year, the priest's role was to sort of offer animal sacrifices in the temple. And these sacrifices were for the people's sins. They would be offered up and the people would be forgiven. And it's bizarre to our ears, I know, um, but that was just, that was the way it was. And, um, but the author sees in Jesus' own death on the cross, he sees Jesus' own death on the cross in these same terms. That Jesus' death, he says, functioned like that. He offered his life for us that we could be forgiven. That sin, the thing that at the very beginning led to distance between us and God, the thing that was the problem from the word go, would no longer be an issue. And the author and the rest of the New Testament see the cross not just as a sad moment, a horrible death, a, a, and a good example to follow, but as a as a massively significant event. It was God making a way for us to be forgiven, to be restored, to be reconciled to him, to have that deepest need of ours met. He's a better high priest because of what he offered. He offered himself. Animal sacrifices, the author goes on to say, could never really do anything. They couldn't ever deal with the problem. But Jesus has. He really has. And so, he write, so the author um, writes to these Jewish Christians, nothing else can do that. Jesus is a far superior priest. No other, nothing else can do that. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? And to you and I, the author presents Jesus' death on the cross as the source of forgiveness, of peace, of freedom from guilt and shame, as the source of deep reconciliation with God. So if you're here tonight and you just feel burdened by sin, by guilt, by shame, by any, you, you need look no further than Jesus. He's a better mediator between us and God because of what he offers, but also where he offers it. If you look, um, the, text, oh, sorry, the text says that he ministers in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So all the other priests worked in a tent. In a, it was a, in the temple for a little while. It was in a tent. Um, and, uh, but both were built by men, by people. Um, but it says here that Jesus entered the true tent that God set up. And the author's sort of reminding his audience that the whole priestly system, the temple, which um, the, whether it was the, the brick building or whether it was the, the canvas one, um, was only ever a copy of the real thing. They believed that Moses based its design, he designed it, based its design on a vision of a heavenly temple 
the real thing, a superior one. And the, uh, the, the scholar N.T. Wright likens it to this. He, he likens it to the difference between playing Sabutio and playing football. Have you ever played Sabutio? You know, the little, you flick the football figures. Um, it's like playing Sabutio and playing football. The one is just a copy of the other. It's not the real thing. It's not the substance of it. The real is superior and far, far better. And so the author writes that Jesus is better because he plays the real game. He plays in the real game. He plays on the real pitch. He goes straight to God, to the heavenly temple, to the real thing. And it's important, I think, because, you know, if you ever want to see change in anything, in a, co- in a company or a country or um, wherever you need to get your, wherever you want to see change, you need to have your voice heard in the rooms where decisions are made, right? In the halls of power, in the boardroom, or parliament back in the day when decisions were actually made there, Um, (laughs) or uh, in the Oval Office or whatever. You need to get your voice heard there. All of this means it really works. That's what the author's saying. The priestly system could never fix the problem, like the plumber I had who couldn't fix my pipes. But Jesus really can and really has because he's gone straight to God himself. The author writes to these Jewish Christians, don't go back. Why would you go back? Don't go back to something that doesn't work. Don't employ a plumber who can't fix the problem when you already have one who can. He's a better mediator between us and God because what he offers, where he offers it, and because of who he is. The text says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And the author's shown that Jesus represents us well because he's like us. He is human. But there's another thing to notice as we saw in chapter 1. Bodders mentioned it and the first week. The author It's clear that Jesus is God. And it's hard to get our heads around. um, But if we can just sort of go with it for a moment, it means that not only is Jesus mediating for us, but he's actually God come to us. God with us, Emmanuel. We read earlier in the New Testament how Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It reminds me a little bit of um, Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm sure most of us, we've seen that, right? Most of us. <laughs> this is excellent. Um, I love that film. Uh, but the fa- this father loses custody of his children. Um, but because he deeply loves them, he can't bear not to be in their lives. And Robin Williams does the masterful job of disguising himself as their nanny, unbeknown to them. And uh, it isn't until later in the film that the children realize that this nanny is actually their dad in disguise, longing to be with them. Now, it's, it's a slightly crude picture, and it falls down theologically in many ways. Uh, you can't base your theology on um, Mrs. Doubtfire, I'm afraid. Um, but I wonder if in it we might see just something of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. As Robin Williams pulls off his face mask, revealing that the nanny all along was actually the loving father. In Jesus, we don't have a third-party mediator. 
like every other system, like every other high priest. We don't just have a middleman. We have God himself reaching out to us in love. Isn't that amazing? He's a far better mediator, so much better, full of love. He's not part of a clinical system of ritual and ceremony and which family line are you from? And it's the love of a father relentlessly pursuing his children. It's amazing. So why does any of this really matter? Like, ultimately, why does it matter? If you're here today and you've never known Jesus, then it matters because the outrageous claim is that Jesus is the answer to your deepest need. That Jesus and only Jesus is the answer. And whilst that sounds outrageous, there are billions of people across thousands of years and every continent who would say, I've found that to be true. If you read that Changing Lives booklet that Amy mentioned, story after story where they found that to be true. But for many of us, we've maybe been following Jesus for a while, maybe even for decades. And this matters because like with those Jewish Christians that the author's writing to, there's a continual danger to drift. He uses that language, he or she, sorry. He's saying he all the way through, he or she. We don't know. But they used that language drift in the first chapter. And we face that like they did, the danger, the temptation to drift, to be distracted by other things. You know, for us, we're unlikely to be tempted to go back to like a priestly system or a temple ritual. If that's you, then okay. But um, most of us, it's probably not the thing. Um, But we do live in a world where we're bombarded by loads and loads of things that promise us life, that promise us fulfillment, but ultimately can distract us from the true source of those things. One statistic I read this week said, on average, we see 10,000 advertisements a day, all telling us that everything will be okay if we just get this thing, just have that thing, just look like this person. Everything will be okay if we just... And the temptation, the potential to begin putting our hope, seeking life in other things is high. It's always present. You know, following Jesus doesn't mean that life's going to be easy and everything's just going to be amazing all the time. And so there are going to be times, like those Jewish Christians are facing under persecution, there are going to be times where we're just tempted to look elsewhere. And so it matters because we too need to be reminded that only he can meet the wanting in our wanting, our deepest need. Only he can reconcile us to God, the God who made us for himself. We need to be reminded again and again and again, don't go back, don't look elsewhere, don't forget, don't lose sight of the value of what you have. Recently, um, there was an article in the paper about a lady uh, he'd ordered a bottle of wine in this restaurant and the waiter served them and they <clears throat> enjoyed their meal and particularly the wine. And so they ordered another bottle and, um, and it was at that point that the waiter realized that he'd made an error, that rather than the bottle worth 80 pounds that they had ordered, he had given them a bottle worth two and a half thousand pounds. And so uh, he, he apologized to them and, and um, said, you know, regretfully, he couldn't offer them another one. Um, and later that evening, the restaurant owner tweeted about it. 
And he said, you know, congratulations to the customer who was accidentally given the two and a half thousand pound bottle of wine. And to the waiter responsible, don't worry, we all make mistakes, we still love you. And then uh, actually, amusingly, Specsavers then retweeted it saying, you know our thoughts on this. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? <laughs> but they were drinking two and a half thousand pounds bottle of red wine. And they didn't even know its value. Don't let Jesus' value escape you. If you know him, you are drinking the best wine. Don't miss it. Don't let your heart wander. I remember going through a period <clears throat> where, for various reasons, I just found myself getting distracted. I was in second year of uni. And, um, and everything on the surface level was fine. Like, everything stayed the same. Nothing really looked like there was no major rebellion. But I think my heart had begun just to wander, just to get distracted, just to focus and look for fulfillment, satisfaction in, in other things, in different areas. And I remember a moment I was sitting... Um, in a field on holiday at night, and I was um, reading this book, Hebrews, actually. And, um, and the words of it, the, the, the warnings and the encouragements landed on my heart in a way that I've rarely experienced before, um, but that totally broke me, totally brought conviction to the way that I'd been just getting distracted and been looking to other things. And I remember the next day, at some event, singing the song, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. And I remember just weeping and weeping as I sang this song because I realized again the value of Jesus, that he brings us back to God. He meets our deepest needs. He's everything that we need. And I remember weeping and weeping as I sang those words. Perhaps you're aware today of the futility of so many of the things and so many of the places that you look to for fulfillment. Perhaps you're feeling pulled and distracted by any number of different things. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you just feel yourself drawn in different directions and we'd love to pray for you. But no matter where you're at tonight, whatever our background, whatever we've done, whatever situation we're here in, Whatever's going on, the invitation this evening is the same. No matter what, no matter who you are, the invitation is exactly the same. Come, come be reconciled to God. Come be restored. Come find rest for your soul. It's all available. In the words of the hymn, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's stand together.